Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. Hello and welcome to Canadians in Old Time Radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, founder and president of CATRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance. In honor of Remembrance Day, we present an hour-long Made in Canada segment. It's a presentation of the CBC entitled The Road to Victory. The Road to Victory. CBC presents The Road to Victory. On this final day of the war in Europe, we look back over five years and eight months of desperate and heroic struggle waged by the free peoples of the world against the deadly menace of fascism. The road to victory has been hard and long, and if we retrace our steps along it, back to that summer of 1939, we find ourselves in a different world. A different world. A world that lives on edge. The nerves of the people of Europe are stretched to breaking point. In Berlin, Sir Neville Henderson, special envoy of the British government, makes a last desperate attempt to stave off the tragedy. At midnight on August 30th, he makes a final fruitless effort to reason with the mad Nazi Ribbentrop. There. There you have heard the magnanimous proposals of the Führer for the settlement of the Polish question. Unfortunately, Herr von Ribbentrop, you read them so rapidly but I was unable to grasp the full meaning of the document. If you will be good enough to give me a copy, however, I will at once submit it to my government. Impossible. It is now too late. The Poles have failed to send an envoy to Berlin. But, Herr von Ribbentrop, you can't expect an envoy with full powers to arrive within a day. Enough. It is too late, I say. Too late. As I returned to the British Embassy that night, I knew that war was inevitable. Sunday morning, September 3rd, 1939. I am speaking to you in the cabinet room of 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Oh, 
bloody old war again. War, my dear, means war. It's war this time and no fooling. Like air. I'll call like air. War, the crazy over there. It's war, Bert. It's war, John. Like air, Pierre. Oh, war, Pete. Wars are mad. Bloody old war again. Paper, paper. Athenia torpedoed, Athenia sunk. Late night final. Star News and Standard, paper. Standard. Horses ain't wasted much time, have they, sir? No, they haven't wasted much time. Do hurry, dear. There we are. I can't please, sir, Mummy. You do look a fright. I'll take it off now. Please, Mummy. Can't I keep it on just a little while? Whatever for. Me and Johnny want to play tiger. Good heavens, child. That's not what your gas mask's for. Oh, Gwen, darling. I'm afraid for them over there, Peter. I can't help it. They'll be all right, Mary, way out in the country. But Mother's not strong. She's old, Peter, and dead. Oh, I wish they were here in Canada with us. If they start bombing, they won't bother about country villages. They'll go for London. Hello, Bill. Where are you keeping? Not off bad, Albert. Ready for another go at old Jerry, eh? Not me. What we've winter sitting in. I saw enough mud last time. Ah, go on with you. Let you two to one, we'll both be back on good old Plug Street before Christmas. How about it, eh? We're a sight too old for that game, Albert. Too old, me eye. We're bloody well essential, that's what we are. They can't run a bleeding war without us, Bill, so come on and let's get on with it. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. You hear them, John? Yes, must be on their way to Victoria. In an hour, you'll be following them. I wish they wouldn't sing that song. But why? It's wrong somehow. It belongs to last time. Last time? I mean, it belongs to the war we were supposed to have won. The one millions died to win. The war to end wars. The war to end wars. To make the world safe for democracy. We had that one. Never again. Again. Last time it was Pete, and, and now it's you, Mickey. Sorry, Mom. We're leaving for Halifax tonight. Oh, no, Michael. No, it's too soon. I've got to go, Mom. Now, look, lad. There they go. Well, uh, they're Canadians, are we? They look just like ordinary people. That's what they are like, ordinary people. And we're glad to see them. September 1939. British troops are in France, and British people throughout the world have rallied to the mother country in the fight against fascism. But in Poland, things are going badly. September 15th. German patrols reach outskirts of Warsaw. September 17th, Russian troops enter eastern Poland. September 27th, Warsaw surrenders. The Battle of Poland is over. But the real war has yet to begin. Guess maybe they'll call it a day over there. Do you think they'll go on with it, Pete? Guess so. Don't see what else they can do. An ominous calm hangs over the battlefronts as fall turns to winter. The people of Europe, keyed to fighting pitch by the declaration of war, sink into the frustration and doubt of the Sitzkrieg. In Britain, the winter is hard, cold, and dark in the blackout. Come on, let's go. This is terrible. I know, let's but go home. why stumble through the blackout? Get some more drinks and we'll wait till it's light. Oh, all right, but this place bores me to death. Damn this phony war anyway. And on the home front everywhere, excitement turns gradually to indifference. Might as well throw this stuff out, I guess. Hey, wait a minute, Mary. Don't forget there's a war on. Yes, there's a war on. That's what they say, but... If they don't start fighting it soon, we'll never see our boy back, Pete. We'll get the fighting soon enough. You'll see. December 13th to 17th, 1939. British cruisers Exeter, Ajax, and Achilles, after engaging the Graf Spey, 
forced the German pocket battleship to limp disabled into Montevideo. Captain Langsdorf, acting on Hitler's orders, scuttles his ship rather than renew the engagement. All this training stuff may be okay, I guess it is, but boy, I could sure do with some action. You said it, brother. That goes for me, too. What the hell did we come over here for, anyway? To darn well freeze to death in the fog and break our necks in the blackout. What a war. And then, with a late and a reluctant unfolding of the spring, came action. April 9th, 1940. Germans invade Denmark and Norway. May 3rd. Powerless to wage effective battle against German supremacy in the air, Allied expeditionary forces are withdrawn from Norway. But what does it mean, Pete? I don't understand. Why, just the other day they were saying... It means we're licked in Norway, Mary, and that's bad. On top of Poland, that's mighty bad. That's muddling through for you, but I'm afraid it's not going to be good enough this time. Not good enough. On May 8th, Clement Attlee rose in the House of Commons to say just that on behalf of the people of Britain. Mr. Attlee said, There is widespread anxiety among the people of this country, and they are not satisfied that the war is being waged with sufficient energy, capacity, drive, and resolution. Not in Norway alone. The Norwegian campaign is the culmination of other discontents. May 10th, Winston Churchill becomes Prime Minister as Germans invade Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Now, thank you for the first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country, of our empire, of our allies, and above all, of the cause of freedom. A tremendous battle is raging in France and Flanders. The Germans, by a remarkable combination of air bombing and heavily armored tanks, have broken through the French defenses north of the Maginot Line, and strong columns of their armored vehicles are ravaging the open country, which for the first day or two was without defenders. May 14th, Germans take Rotterdam. May 18th, Germans take Antwerp. May 21st, Germans reach Channel at Abbeville. May 28th, Belgian army surrenders. May 29th, Dunkirk. The evacuation of Allied forces begins, and the world waits for news with bated breath. We've got to get those fellows out. It's up to the Navy. How's that old tub of yours, Johnson? Firefly, fair. Floats nicely as long as you keep bailing. Then be a good chap and get her out. You're going to Dunkirk. Dunkirk? I've never been farther than South End in my life. Never mind. We've got to get those chaps out. Anything you say, Skipper? Managed to scrounge a hurricane. What did you get? Very bad. Uh-oh, that's bad. Cram with a pop gun, but what the hell? We've got to get them out. We've got to get them out. And to the joy of the free world, most of them did get out. June 4th, 1940. The miracle of Dunkirk is over, and Churchill speaks Britain's defiance to the Nazis. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing strength and confidence in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the course may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. (laughs) 
But as the world admires the great exploit at Dunkirk, the tide of German success flows swiftly on. June 10th, Germans cross the Seine. Italy declares war on France. On this 10th day of June, 1940, the hand that held the dagger has struck it into the back of its neighbor. Harris! Harry! Harris! Blimey! A bloody sight too near home for comfort, that is. Yes, on June 14th, Paris falls to the consternation and horror of the whole free world. June 17th, old Marshal Pétain broadcast to the French people. Marshal Pétain said, I have applied to our opponent to ask him if he is ready to sign with us as between soldiers after the fight and in honor, a means to put an end to hostilities. France has lost a battle, but she has not lost the war. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in his island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit upland. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. July 1940 is a fine, sunny month in Europe. Britain works desperately to rebuild her shattered army while the world waits for the German blow to fall. The nerves of the British people are braced and their ears strained for the sound of the bombers that will surely come from the clear beauty of the summer skies. This is indeed a crucial hour for Britain and the world. If they're coming, Bert, if they're coming, God... Why don't they get on with it? Steady, Millie, steady. August 8th. Large-scale daylight raids on Britain begin. The Battle of Britain is on. For a month, the Nazi raiders feel out the air defenses of Britain, working gradually closer to the capital. Gordon, Tilbury. Bombs on the West End. We know all about it. Start new standards, brother. You'll soon be out of a job, me lad. What do you mean? Who wants to ruddy well read all about it when the fleet and bombs is falling down the back of your neck? September 7th, 1940. Mass raids on London begin. Bombs on the palace. Buckingham Palace, it. House of Lord. Down in street. Well, what's the news, Bill? Nothing much, sir. Those blinking eye ties is having to go at Egypt, I see. Now, that's something I don't like. A bit close for comfort, eh, sir? Just a trifle. Uh, as I was saying, sir, I don't like it one bit, those dagos getting to Egypt. Why, that's liable to turn dangerous, sir, ain't it? As the Battle of Britain mounts in violence, the RAF begins to take a toll of the raiders that is of decisive importance. Best day yet. 185 Nazi raiders, Dan. RAF 185, not that. Hello, Bert, you're looking all in, my lad. What's up? It was this way. 
I was driving my cab down Grafton Street with a trailer pump on the back. We'd just been putting out an incendiary fire in Maple Street when a bloke rushes up waving his hands and shouting, Bert, he says, Bert, you've got to go home. Your place has copped it good and proper. Although the RAF has taken the measure of the Nazi raiders and the most critical phase of the battle has been won, the agony of Britain has only just begun. Under the fearful rain of bombs, Londoners go underground by the thousands to find shelter in the deep tubes. As the terrible winter wears on, the Luftwaffe extends its range of operations over Britain, hoping to find other cities less stoical than London. But the first crucial round in the Battle of Britain has been won, and in Churchill's words... We stood our ground and faced the two dictators in the hour of what seemed their overwhelming triumph. And we have shown ourselves capable so far of standing up against them alone. <clears throat> After the heavy defeat of the German Air Force by our fighters in August and September, Hitler did not dare attempt the invasion of this island. Although he had every need to do so, and although he had made vast preparations. 500 planes raid Coventry. Southampton. Bristol. Birmingham. Plymouth. Liverpool. Bristol again, Pete. Mother's only five miles from Bristol. Five miles is a long way, Mary. You can bet they're going for the docks. Wait, wait, wait. It's all news in the center. We know all about it. Still at it, eh, Bill? Yes, sir. Good news tonight, sir. Our lads are giving those eyes what for. Took Benghazi they did today. Oh. Well, good luck, Bill. Thank you, sir. Good luck. Yes, as the guns thunder and the bombs continue to rain down on the island fortress... As the threat of invasion becomes hourly more ominous, the average Briton feels that he needs all the good luck he can get if he is to live to see another day. But out of the ordeal of death and fire, he begins to draw a new kind of strength, born of the confidence that the country as a whole can take the worst that the Germans can hand out. On February 9th, 1941, Mr. Churchill confirms this victory won by the ordinary people of Britain in a broadcast to the world. Put your confidence in us. Give us your faith and your blessing. And under providence, all will be well. We shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. In the spring of 1941, the triumph of the Battle of Britain, the signing of the Lend-Lease Bill by President Roosevelt, and the British naval victory over the Italians at Cape Matapan, all combined to produce a feeling of optimism in Britain and throughout the free world. But the feeling is short-lived. For the war rapidly takes a turn for the worse. Hello, Bill. Hello, sir. Bit glum tonight, eh? Yes, sir. See, we lost Benghazi today. Lost Benghazi. Why the hell don't they let us get into this war? April 6th. Germans invade Yugoslavia and Greece. Oh, it looks like we may see some action. April 18th. Yugoslavs surrender. Well, send us to Greece, then. April 23rd. Greek surrender. What's the news, Mary? Nothing about our boys, but it says... It says Rudolf Hess has landed in Scotland. What? How did you capture him? Was he on? I had my pitchfork with me, man. But the hood, John. The biggest battleship in the Navy. It's not quite as bad as it sounds, dear. She was an old ship. Yes, an old ship. But it isn't just a matter of the hood or any other single ship. If the British Navy doesn't get the Bismarck, it will be one of the heaviest blows to British morale of the whole war. If. On May 26th came the Navy's answer to the challenge of the Bismarck. At 11 a.m. this morning, the cruiser Dorsetshire went in close to the Bismarck and fired a number of torpedoes. 
Shortly afterwards, the battleship turned over slowly and went to the bottom at a point 400 miles from the port of Brest. But in other ways, the month of May 1941 is a bad month at sea. In that one month alone, the Germans sink half a million tons of Allied shipping. And on June 1st, the British announced the withdrawal from Crete. Another masterly withdrawal, it says here. Yes, that's all very well. We don't help much to win this here war now, does it? No, it don't, and that's a fact. Strikes me it's about time the good old USA got into this here scrap. If Great Britain goes down, the Axis powers will control the continents of Europe, Asia, Africa, Australasia, and the high seas. And they will be in a position to bring enormous military and naval resources against this hemisphere. It is no exaggeration to say that all of us in all the Americas would be living at the point of a gun, a gun loaded with explosive bullets, economic as well as military. As spring turns to summer and U.S. participation in the war seems to become more probable every day, a strange sense of expectancy hangs in the air. What's he going to do next, boy? Hitler can't afford to mark time. Darn if I know. But I hope the hell he heads this way. Then maybe we'll see some action. Maybe. Hey, you know, it's getting on for two years since we came to England, Mick. Two years. More like two centuries. I've forgotten what a home looks like. And then... On June 22nd comes the news that changes the whole war overnight. The Germans march against the Soviet Union, and the world struggle enters an entirely new phase. The German attack on Russia completely changes the political and military aspects of the war. Free men the world over feel that at last Hitler has made a big mistake. The Russians are forced back in bitter defensive battles, but Britain is relieved from the pressure of German air raids. There is new hope in British hearts as life begins to resume something of its old pattern. You can say what you like about Russia, old chap, but she certainly saved our bacon this time. No doubt about it. She can hold out until we can help. If only she can hold out. That is the hope and heartfelt wish in the hearts and minds of millions. August, September, October, November. Four months of slow, bitter retreat for the Red Army. Their gloomy days, the days of the first great German push into Russia, months of heartbreak and tragedy for Russia... Months of invaluable respite from German pressure for the forces of freedom. And then, one Sunday afternoon in the darkest month of all, when the Wehrmacht is within a few miles of Moscow, comes the news that changes the war again. interrupt the program in order to bring you news of the greatest importance. A few moments ago, the White House announced that at dawn today, Japanese planes attacked the United States naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. I will repeat that. At dawn today... December 8th, 1941. Almost lost in the violence of world reaction to Japanese treachery comes a short news item from Berlin. The Wehrmacht abandons its drive on Moscow. And the next day, President Roosevelt speaks to a nation still stunned by the impact of one of history's greatest infamies. The Japanese have treacherously violated the long-standing peace between us. Many American soldiers and sailors have been killed by enemy action. American ships have been sunk. American airplanes have been destroyed. The Congress and the people of the United States 
have accepted that challenge. Blowed if we haven't taken ruddy old Tobrook again. Quite like old times, isn't it, with our chaps back there? Merry Christmas, Bill. Same to you, sir. Not we've got much to be merry about, if you come to think of it. No, it's not exactly a happy day, Christmas 1941. For Canadians in particular, it's a day of sorrow. Hong Kong falls to the Japanese. And the fate of two Canadian battalions sent to reinforce the British garrison in November is unknown. Canadians fear the worst. It's awful, Pete. They never had a chance. What do you suppose has happened to them? With those Japs, you just can't tell. They'll do anything. If only we could find out for certain it's not knowing about him that... Well, there's nothing we can do, Mother. Nothing at all. Except, well, when it comes to settling accounts with those devils, we won't forget Hong Kong. Through the winter, spring, and early summer of 1942, the list of Jap victories lengthens. In Russia, too, the Wehrmacht has once more taken the offensive with a great drive into the Crimea, extended later through the Donetsk Basin and on toward Stalingrad. At the same time, Rommel tips the scales in Libya and begins to force the British back toward El Alamein. See, we lost Tobruk again, Bill. Some sort of a game they're playing there in Africa, if you ask me. Regular blinking seesaw, what I says. But you wait, we'll be back. We ain't lost good old Tobruk for keeps, Albert. Our lads in Africa are all right. Sure do feel like a louse. Get me down, Jack, sitting around this one-horse English town doing nothing. So what? What's the good of beef? Don't you ever read the papers? Axis in Egypt. Fall of Sebastopol. Japs take Kokoda. That's the way it goes day after day and week after week. Well, our Air Force is plastering Germany all the time, too, day after day and week after week. That's going to count. Sure. Maybe in the end it will. But with things going the way they are, we ought to be fighting, brother, not training, and you know it. Well, don't blow your top, Mickey. I got a hunch we'll be fighting soon. Mighty soon now. August 19, 1942. An Allied force, composed mostly of Canadians, crosses the channel to raid the German-held and strongly fortified port of Dieppe. It's a proud and bitter day for Canada. Of the 5,000 Canadians in the attacking force, 3,350 are casualties. In these last days of August, the tempo of the war mounts to a new fevered climax. August 22nd, Germans launch all-out offensive against Stalingrad. August 25th, Japs land at Milne Bay, New Guinea. August 31st, Rommel attacks at El Alamein. Seems to me this is a pretty serious moment, Mary. You see, so far here in Canada, we haven't felt this war much. Not many of us, anyway. There was Hong Kong and Dieppe, sure. And we've had to put up with a few things we don't like here at home, but the real fight has been going on a long, long way away from us. We've been in this nearly three years now, and I've only just begun to understand that the fighting really can come to us here. I think it can and it will, unless the Germans and the Japs are stopped right now on every front. We gotta work like hell to stop them. We gotta give every damn thing we've got. And all over the world, to freedom-loving people everywhere, there comes that feeling that a moment of supreme crisis in human history has been reached. Our fate hangs in the balance. <laughs> Everywhere, on every front, the crisis is met and passed. Our lads are holding it in Alamein. The Yanks and Australians are holding in New Guinea. And the Russians hold at Stalingrad. 
by the end of September 1942, the huge and ponderous pendulum of war has begun to swing back the other way. And in their hearts, the people know that at last they are on the road to victory, the road that has been so hard to find, and the road that still stretches far ahead, but the right road at last. Russians counterattack at Stalingrad. Japs forced back at New Guinea. Montgomery attacks at El Alamein. In the last days of 1942, the tide of Allied victory begins to flow, slowly at first, but surely. Allied grand strategy takes real shape for the first time with the invasion of North Africa, victory in the desert, and the opening of the great Russian winter offensive. On January 7th, 1943, President Roosevelt reports to Congress. The Axis powers knew that they must win the war in 1942 or eventually lose everything. I do not need to tell you that our enemies did not win the war in 1942. In the first months of 1943, the ultimate Allied victory begins to take shape with greater force and speed. January 23rd, British take Tripoli. Good old Monty. He's there for keeps this time. January 31st, German 6th Army surrenders at Stalingrad, and the Russians capture 16 German generals. You should have got a hand it to those Russians. They can take it and dish it out. Kursk. Rostov. Voroshilovgrad. Kharkov. Viesma. Through February and March, the Red Army sweeps on in its irresistible drive to the west. At the same time, Allied air power is steadily growing. U.S. flying fortresses join the RAF heavies in a stepped-up plastering of Germany. In Africa, the Axis forces are on their last legs as the men of the 8th Army join with other Allied forces for the final stage of the campaign. Paper, paper, Allied take Tunis and deserters. Star News and Standard. Standard. That's more like it, eh, Bill? Yes, sir. Always said our lads would do it, and they have good and proper, and no mistake. May 12th, 1943. Axis resistance ends in Africa. With the summer comes the news that another Allied victory of fundamental importance has been added to those in Russia and Africa. British, Canadian, and Allied navies have checked the Nazis in the Battle of the Atlantic. When the war would begin. But it is not for him or for his successor to say when it will end. It began when he wanted it. And it will end only when we are convinced that he has had enough. In the early summer of 43, there is a brief lull on the land front. But the Allied air assault on Germany reaches new peaks of intensity. And the knowledge that new Allied blows are in the making raises the spirits of troops and civilians of all Allied countries. Well, this looks like it, Mickey. Yeah, sure does. Wonder where it's going to be. By the looks of our kid, I'd say we might be going to take a trip to the sunny south, fella. I guess you're right at that. Okay by me. Me too, brother. July 10th, allies land on Sicily. And two weeks later comes the fall of Mussolini. Canadian steak regal butyl, Mary. Oh, Pete, I'll bet Mickey's there. I just know he is. Boys, you're doing all right over there in Sicily. I'll say, and I sure wish I was back over there with them instead of sitting around here in Canada. You won't be here long, pal. By the looks of our kid, I figure we're heading for somewhere kind of different from Sicily. Yeah, looks sort of like the North Pole to me. August 15th. As Churchill and Roosevelt meet at Quebec, Allied troops, including Canadians, take Kiska and the Aleutians. Two days later, German resistance in Sicily ends. And on September 3rd, exactly four years after the outbreak of war, Italy surrenders. With the surrender of Italy, the war enters yet another phase as Allied troops land on the Italian mainland and thereby gain a footing in the European fortress. It is the beginning of the end. And events begin to move with ever-increasing speed. 
Russians sweep on to take Smolensk and Kiev. Allies drive through Naples and on up the Italian boot. American forces take Tarawa and open the great Central Pacific campaign. Eden, Molotov, and Hull meet in Moscow. Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt meet at Tehran, and the president reports on his return. I have conferred with the leaders of Britain and Russia and China on military matters of the present, especially on plans for stepping up our successful attack on our enemies as quickly as possible and from many different points of the compass. As the year 1944 opens, the anticipation of an Allied invasion of Western Europe grows more intense. On the many battlefronts and at home, men and women of the free nations redouble their efforts for victory, inspired by the hope that the end is in sight. Allied air forces attack Germany with a new fury and intensity, and the Russians continue to advance. In Italy, progress is slow, with bitter fighting all the way in which Canadians take a leading role. We're in Ortona, Mickey. By God, we're going to stay here. Oh, I hope not. If it doesn't stop raining, we'll drown in this dump. They call it sunny Italy, but we know different. As the first signs of spring appear, the march of events reaches a new peak in tempo. Allies land at Anzio. Relief of Leningrad. Russians take Sebastopol. Allies take Casino. With the Red Army in full cry after the Germans in the east and with Allied troops on the outskirts of Rome, the stage is set at last for the greatest drama of the war. General Montgomery to the Allied invasion forces. To us, he's given the honor of striking a blow for freedom which will live in history. And in the better days that fly ahead, men will speak with pride of our doings. Let us go forward to victory. In the early hours of June 6, 1944, the Allied invasion of Western Europe begins with landings in the Normandy beaches. This is the long-awaited D-Day, and now in the first crucial hours, the free people of the world can only wait and pray. We needed a revival of spirit, a new, unconquerable resolve. After nearly five years of toil and suffering, we must renew that crusading impulse on which we entered the war and met its darkest hour. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms darkness for their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. Fifty-four hours after the first landing on the shores of Normandy, General Eisenhower said, My complete confidence in the ability of the Allied armies, navies, and air forces to do all they are asked to do has been completely justified. As the United States forces swing west across the Cherbourg Peninsula to set the seal on invasion success by taking the port of Cherbourg, Canadian troops are engaged in the tough and all-important job of holding the main German armored forces in the Caen sector in collaboration with British units. Here on the east wing of the beachhead, that takes place some of the fiercest fighting of the entire war. We expected to do well on that first day. We knew we could crash through the famous west wall Yet it's surprising that we did so well. The German defenders of the beaches were not Rommel's crack troops, but they had concrete positions to fight from, and every inch of the beaches was registered by heavy machine guns and 75s. Our ferocious supporting fire 
as we came in from the sea in broad daylight on Tuesday morning, and the terrific bombing had stunned or neutralized some of the beach defenses, but some of them were untouched, and the assault troops had to jump from their landing craft in the heavy rising tide and storm the positions with a bayonet. Three weeks after D-Day, the port of Cherbourg is captured, and the Normandy beachhead is now a full-fledged front. The Red Army takes Vitebsk and Vipuri in Finland, while in the Pacific, the Americans land on Saipan. The Allied pattern of victory is rapidly filling in. And then from Germany comes a dramatic announcement. This is the Deutschland Sender. We interrupt the program in order to bring you grave news. Today an attempt was made on the life of the Führer with explosives. <laughs> The first outward sign of really serious internal trouble in Germany is the immediate prelude to amazing military developments in France. American forces break out of the Normandy beachhead and have the Germans in western France on the run. The German radio delivers a bitter pill to the people of the Reich. We must be prepared for German withdrawal from France, for it is out of the question to send reinforcements. We must expect the loss of places with world-famous names. And in fact, the Germans are about to lose a place with one of the most famous names in the whole world. On August 15th, new Allied landings are made on the south coast of France. And on the 25th of the month, while British and Canadian troops swarm across the Lower Seine, American forces, preceded by free French units, march into Paris. The heart and soul of France is free once more. With the liberation of Paris and the greater part of metropolitan France, the Allied peoples felt the first real surge of victory. But as the Allied troops moved on to the borders of the Reich, Mr. Duncan Sand rose in the British House of Commons to tell a sad and still sinister story. In 80 days, the V-1 row bombs have damaged 870,000 English houses. They have killed 5,817 people and have seriously wounded 17,000 others. 92% of all these casualties have occurred in the London area. Yes, after more than five years of war, London is still taking it. Lord, if I don't think these here buzz bombs are the worst of the blinking lot, Bill. You're right there, mate. All I hope is them there Canadians step lively and clear out them launching sites. In the first week of October, to the vast relief of Britons, the Canadians take Calais and move on to clear the great port of Antwerp for Allied use. And then there begins for the Allies a period of puzzlement and hope deferred. All thoughts of victory in 1944 die as the year draws to an end. And the news awakens the sleeping uncertainty in many hearts. Soldiers of the Reich, your great hour has struck. Strong attacking armies are advancing today against the Anglo-Americans. You bear the holy duty to achieve the superhuman for our fatherland and our Führer. For the free peoples of the world, the joy of the fifth wartime Christmas is overshadowed by a grave anxiety caused by von Rundstedt's offensive in the Ardennes. Churchill reports on V2 casualties. British troops fight Greeks in Athens. Japs make important gains in China. With the first weeks of the new year, 1945, the gloom is wiped away by a sudden and profound change in the war situation. Rundstedt's hard blow on the Western Front was first headed off, then sealed off. Now it is being written off. And then, once again, Stalin gives the word and the Red Army smashes clear across Poland in a few tremendous days. 
They've done it again. Boy, you've sure got a hand to those Russians. Only 40 miles from Berlin. As the Red Army pauses at the gates of Berlin after its amazing feats, the Western Front stirs into life. Canadians begin the bitter battle for the Reichswald, and Americans push toward the Ruhr. In the Pacific, Manila has fallen to the forces of General MacArthur, and Tokyo has been hit hard by raids from U.S. carriers. On every front, the Allies are attacking. The world stage is being set for the last and greatest act in the drama of this war. And in the wings, the three master dramatists, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, are planning the curtain, the knockout blow, and the kind of world we are to live in afterwards. On the afternoon of March 7th, 1945, only a few days after Churchill and Roosevelt have given their reports on the Alta Conference, units of the United States First Army capture intact the Ludendorff Bridge at Remagen and cross the River Rhine. The curtain has risen on the last act. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC speaking from Germany. There was just one more river to cross and there it's crossed. In cellars in the hot vault, toward the end of our hard battle that prepared the way for this. I had often listened to Canadian soldiers talking about the crossing of the Rhine, the last assault crossing, and perhaps the hardest. And now it seems almost too good to be true that the Rhine is crossed. There may be hard battles ahead, but the wide, swift German river, the very symbol of Germany, is crossed. Allies, we support the right in straight. How's that for news, sir? It's what we've been waiting for, Bill. Oh, well, I hope, sir, is we make a proper job of it this time. They give them jerrys a bleeding good taste of their own medicine. Not like last time. No, not like last time. For this time, the final battleground is the Reich itself, as the full tide of a mighty victory swells toward Berlin. City after city, deep in the German heartland, falls to Canadian, British, French, and American troops. And cheering news comes from other spheres of battle, too. V-bombing in! Read all about it, official! No more V-bomb! Well, thank the Lord for that. And then, as the drama mounts toward its final peak, death comes to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as it has come to so many others who have fought for freedom. And in the very moment of victory, the free peoples of the world pause to mourn the death of a friend, a great leader in the cause of freedom, a great architect of victory. As the sad music dies, the noise of battle mounts and great events flash across the European stage with breathtaking speed. Nothing now can stop the gigantic military machine which we have built and set in motion. Vienna falls to the Russians. Americans reach the Elbe. Red Army surrounds Berlin. Americans and Red Army meet on the Elbe. Allied offensive in Italy. Mussolini executed by Italian partisans. Hitler dead. The Red Army takes Berlin. Germans and Italians surrender in Italy and Hamburg surrenders to the British. This is the end of the road to victory in Europe, and Allied military leaders and statesmen speak to the world. On May 4th, 1945, General Montgomery accepts the surrender of a large part of the German forces in Europe. This surrender marks the beginning of the final collapse of German resistance, and on this eighth day of May, 1945, comes the official news that the war in Europe is at an end. In a broadcast, Major General Quirar speaks of the part played by the 1st Canadian Army on the battlefields of Europe. The world, definitely, has been delivered from domination by Hitler and his pack of gangsters. And in this prolonged and bitter struggle, now crowned with victory, the Army of Canada has played a sterling part. Canadians are entitled to be very proud of their soldiers. I am certainly proud beyond words to count myself one of them. 
has been a great inspiration and a great challenge to one's own capacities to be a commander of such men. Certainly the world of this victory day is far removed from that grave Sunday morning five and a half years ago. But the spirit of one man who has done as much to bring about the victory as any other living person has not changed. Winston Churchill. With his words, which have so often inspired the free peoples of the world, the first great stretch of the road to victory comes to an end. The German war is therefore at an end. After years of intense preparation, Germany hurled herself on Poland at the beginning of September 1939. And in pursuance of our guarantee to Poland, and in common with the French Republic, Great Britain, the British Empire, and Commonwealth of Nations declared war upon this foul aggression. After gallant France had been struck down, we from this island and from our united empire maintained the struggle single-handed for a whole year until we were joined by the military might of Soviet Russia and later by the overwhelming power and resources of the United States of America. Finally, almost the whole world was combined against the evildoers who are now prostrate before us. Our gratitude to all our splendid allies goes forth from all our hearts in this island and throughout the British Empire. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. But let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Japan, with all her treachery and greed, remains unsubdued. The injuries she has inflicted upon Great Britain, the United States, and other countries, and her detestable cruelties, call for justice and retribution. We must now devote all our strength and resources to the completion of our task, both at home and abroad. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the king. Blackout and bee bombs and jerrys and all. They asked for it, and they copped it good and proper. Hope they've learned their lesson, Bill. Yes, sir. And I hope we have, too. Victory was written for the CBC by Gerald Noxon, produced and directed by Andrew Allen, with music composed and conducted by Lucio Agostini. The all-Canadian cast was headed by John Draney, Lorne Green, Edley Rennie, and Alan King. Technical operation by Wallace King. The Road to Victory originated in the Toronto studios of the CBC. (laughs) 
If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking. <laughs>